John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. Entry 284.MT2309, certificate number 29423. Father Coglin. When men become so prideful that they believe their destiny is to rewrite the eternal law of God, it's time for their fellow citizens to rise up in their wrath and through the agency of ballots and not bullets to relegate them to the pages of the past. So you are familiar, uh, obviously, with talk radio, a phenomenon of our time, or at least we think of it as a phenomenon of our time. But maybe there are people listening to the show or creatures listening to the show that aren't familiar with it. Maybe they don't have a medium that just makes old people angry <laughs> in their time. But uh, talk radio, which we now consider mostly a um, media of the conservative or, or right-wing side of American public life, is sort of, in a way, a kind of an old media, right? There aren't that many radio listeners who aren't, who aren't listening to sports radio now. Yeah, it's, uh, that's, it's radio. That's what's kind of funny. It's radio, right. And It would uh, be like if um, conservatives were passing around gramophone records or wax cylinders with their ideas on them. But it's a very inflammatory media. There's a lot of yelling. There's a lot of conspiracy. There's a lot of sort of, a, a, it's, it has an antagonistic approach to cultural criticism. The sense that the world is being run by systems and cabals of shadowy figures and uh, internationalists and the radio personal personage rather like Rush Limbaugh or uh, Alex Jones, Alex Jones, right. Who are promulgating theories, right? Enormous theories of how the world works that are designed to agitate people. Right. That's baked into the medium. Now the purpose is to rile you up. That's, to, that, that's not even incidental. That's, that's kind of why you do it. It's almost like, uh, you know, drinking an espresso. And, and it generally like it cultivates the idea that you're, that the listener's feeling of powerlessness or lack of success in the world isn't just attributable to luck or to bad fortune or to lack of enterprise, but because there are forces allied against you that you can't combat. There's a vast shadowy apparatus you can blame. Right. 
but this is not a phenomenon of our era. It actually dates back to the early years of radio. And there was a figure in the man of Father Charles Coughlin. I've been saying that wrong my whole life, by the way. Did you know that? You've like, been saying Coughlin? Well, it looks like cough. Like It is the word <laughs> Coughlin, but it's Coughlin. I should have known because there's actually a Cole Porter song where he rhymes it with, uh, well, he says, picture City Hall without boondoggling. You can see where this is going. Uh-huh. Picture Sunday tea minus Father Coughlin. And I knew that it wasn't Boondofflin. No. I should have known. Boondofflin. You wouldn't boondoffle someone. So uh, Father Coughlin was a Catholic priest and, a, and an active priest, not a defrocked one, who had a, a regular radio show in the United States where he railed against a whole variety, a vast panoply, a rainbow of forces that he considered to be enemies of the American working man. It's so funny to me because when I picture a Catholic priest, it's like, you know, a funny little guy watering his geraniums and, and maybe solving mysteries, mm-hmm. you know? It, mm-hmm. You know, it's it's a nice old guy, you know? Maybe, maybe the uh, the organ institution he represents has institutional problems, but I don't associate a priest with anything sinister. Well, there's a a long history in the Catholic Church of activism, like radical activism, and various factions in the church have adopted extremely uh, revolutionary politics and policies. I mean, if you think about the wars in Central America in the 1980s, I mean, a lot of that was driven by Catholic activism. The idea that you would combine your your political aim with the, what you see as the principles of social justice right. and Christ's gospel, right. and therefore get some kind of uh, divine approbation for your new government or government in exile or whatever it is. Right. And so he's not completely outside of the realm. He's a, he was a member of the Basilian order, which had a, sort of as, as one of its... How, how weird is that on a scale of one to Mel Gibson? Uh, the Basilian order, I mean, these are like even within the church, I mean, the Jesuits were thought of as pretty outside the normal church. Intellectuals. Until, until maybe recent times. Yeah. I mean, the Jesuits were, were the ones that were going out into the undiscovered country in North and South America and, and educating Indians, forming schools, you know, converting. And Asia, you know. And Asia, Korea, too. Japan, India. They only were brought fully into the fold kind of in recent years and often were made uh, pariahs. Uh, the Basilians had as one of their doctrines a prohibition against usury, that this long, long history in Europe of uh, suspicion about collecting interest on loaned money. Are we going to end up connecting this to some of Father Coughlin's uh, suspicions about the world? We will. Okay. And th- this, is, this is another sort of problem that the church has throughout the millennia in being sort of arrayed in conflict with Judaism and with using r- usury as another sort of prime example of how the Jews are usurious, right? I mean, they're, they're sucking from the Christians. Taken off the top. Do we, I don't feel like I have a good sense of whether the strains of anti-Semitism in the church, you know, past, present or whatever, come from doctrinal beliefs about usury or whether it's the other way around, whether certain kinds of Christian 
tisking about usury come from the fact that they already hated Jews? Well, there are. Well, the, I, I think it is the former. There are a lot of, and in, even now within uh, Islam, there are prohibitions against usury, just that are fundamental to the religion. And this was true in. And does that, and by that, would they mean collecting all interest or just exorbitant interest? Collecting all interest. And of course, there are tons and tons of workarounds. Sure. Like in all things. I mean, alcohol is prohibited too, and lots of things are prohibited, and there are always workarounds. Even within Orthodox Jewry, there are prohibitions against using machines during the Sabbath, but there are also ovens and lights that you can set with timers. Elevators that just go up and down on every floor. Right. So you can still use the thing. You just aren't actually flipping the switch. I'm sure a lot of higher functions of modernity, of the human brain in modernity, come evolve out of this need to find loopholes <laughs> for religion. I'm not going to stop believing in the tree god or, or whatever it is in my era, but um, I need to outsmart him somehow. Yeah. So he's now, you know, now I put pine bows around right. the uh, around the altar to Jesus. As long as I cover his knot holes with moss, <laughs> I can then do my bacchanalia. But in Europe, you know, in the in the Middle Ages, uh, the Jews who had, you know, who were living sort of not assimilated or or not completely assimilated in European capitals did not have a prohibition against usury, and it was considered a low occupation, or a, it was considered a a gross and dirty job to be in finance. So it's just like today. <laughs> right, except then it was, you know, like it was, sure, it was like cleaning the streets almost. Oh, right. uh, and so it was a job that the Jews could do, was be moneylenders. So we made them be moneylenders, and then we were like, Psh, what if these guys lended all this money? Well, sure, then they, they, they made money from it, and then that, Wait was, a that, be, second. that became a problem. Wait, are you saying interest is more profitable <laughs> than not collecting interest? <laughs> but Father Coughlin you know, started off uh, a humble parish priest. He's actually Canadian. What? Yep, born in on okay. Hamilton, Ontario. I love the idea that all our um, regressive American <laughs> problems might be Canada's fault. And that's the wonderful thing, right? I mean, you think of the Canadians as so gentle. Uh, he was uh, he was a parish priest there, but gradually sort of became... Um, he was a very fiery preacher, and he developed an audience in his own town, an audience even outside of the Catholic community, because he was such a good proselytizer. I was reading his uh, obituary in the New York Times when he died, and they noted that the, the story of how he went from parish priest in a Detroit suburb to transmitter, it's not just Canada's fault, it's the Klan's fault. Right. The, he The KKK was anti very anti-Catholic at the time, and they burned a cross on his churchyard. So the, the racism and the... the um, how we think of racism now and how racism was playing out at the time are very, very different from one another. The Klan was, in a lot of ways in this period of time, in the early 20th century, primarily an anti-Catholic organization. And so were the Masons. Uh, anti... Papist. Yeah, anti-Catholic sentiment in the country was enormous. And Irish and Italian immigrants were seen as a as sub-races. I'm sure that's the vehicle for it. It's nothing specific about the Pope. Those are just trappings designed later to justify hatred of immigrants who in this era were Italian and Irish Catholic. Well, and in fact, it was specific to the Pope in that within uh, Protestantism, there is no central authority. You're not answering to a foreign 
leader. Sure. There's doctrinal reasons. There's theological reasons to be suspicious of a guy on a throne with a lot of nice stuff. And this was what uh, what made John F. Kennedy so divisive in his era was the, the suggestion that an American president that was Catholic would have a prior allegiance or a super allegiance to the Pope even before the Constitution. Sure. There's no Protestant city-state. Right. There's no Oral Roberts city in the middle of Tulsa. I mean, there is, but it doesn't have, it's not, <laughs> it doesn't have a UN ambassador, you know? And that's a classic anti-Catholic slur. But so Father Coughlin got his start as a defender uh, against the Klan and as a, you know, as I'm a... I'm going to explain Catholicism to my neighbors here in Detroit. That's right. And also... He's just reaching across the aisle and he's a voice of understanding. Uh, and a voice against this sort of racist radicalism. Right. Good job. And the story ends there. What, what a great American hero. <laughs> High five, Father Coughlin. <laughs> but so he's living in Windsor, Canada, which is right across the river from Detroit. And through some machinations of the church, he's encouraged to move across the river and form a parish in Detroit by the bishop of the, of the region. Mm -hmm. And so he does. He, he becomes the pastor in 1918 of a little church called the Shrine of the Little Flower. Isn't that sweet? Are you going to explain the, the uh, Catholic symbolism of the shrine of the little flower? Is that scriptural? The shrine of the little flower. I, you know, I, I don't actually know it. It could be Edelweiss. What is the little flower? I don't remember it being part of the story, the religious, the Christian story. Yeah. In general, the Bible is almost 100% flower free. 100% <laughs> silent on the little flower. Right, because the early apostles were allergic. So it never really comes up in the story of Father Coughlin what the symbolism of the little flower is. But he begins building an, a larger audience in Detroit. And a very, uh, Detroit's at that time, this is the era of Henry Ford. Is it De an affluent, gentrifying city? Or it's is it full of working class Southerners who have come up? Or what's Detroit like? Well, both. It's, this is before the war, so there's not a mad influx of Southern workers. But it is both one of the richest towns in America and the fastest growing, but also a very strong labor town because they're factories. They're I bet it's like Czechs, right? It's like Bohemians and Polish people. It's like Willa Cather characters working in factories, right? Germans and also Italians and, and Irish. I mean, the whole sort of cross-section of the American working class. Sure. Who have, and, and in particular, recent immigrants who are leaving now the East Coast and headed off to this amazing Western city Detroit, Detroit, Michigan. To them, it's like the Emerald City on the horizon. It's so, you know, it's so beautiful. If we can so just beautiful. get to Detroit, we'll be, we'll be okay. And if you look at Detroit now in its, like, squalor and decay, you can still see the bones of what was once America's, like, principal shining new city. Sure, you can see all the amazing civic stuff that all that money got poured into. And these Art Deco skyscrapers. I mean, it, at, the, at the time, it was, like, the home of the skyscraper. We're certainly speaking to people who have the same experience with New York and Tokyo or right. whatever, you know, they're like, can you believe that, uh, that new Tokyo or, uh, new, <laughs> Newarkopolis or whatever was once the center of finance. They can't believe it either as they crawl through the, the ruins looking for edible luminescent, uh, bugs and algae to eat. Right. They're, they're living in a, uh, escape from New York reality, except New York is under 200 feet of water. That's true. That is gonna, the sea level rising is really going to cut down on, um, the ability of them to walk through the rubble of the Statue of Liberty and whatnot. It's mm -hmm. too bad. It is too bad. It's all going to be the Midwestern cities. Yeah, our little torch will be sticking up out of the water. It'll be a little 
yeah, it's actually going to be the St. Louis Arch or whatever. It's got to be very <laughs> inland cities that the that the future uh, robot people crawl through. Well, actually, I think that Mississippi Valley is all going to become an ocean too. Uh, so it'll be Denver or 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 Den- maybe Vale. Vale will be the the biggest city in the country. Denver. Like, are they really going to walk by whatever the tallest building in Denver is and be like, "Look, there it is, the Trans America Mile High Stadium." Exactly. When it comes to meat, quality makes a huge difference in texture and taste. And even though it might be better for you and the environment, a lot of the higher quality meat you find at the grocery store is just too expensive for most people's budget. Thankfully, there's ButcherBox. ButcherBox believes everyone deserves access to high-quality, humanely sourced meat at an affordable price. That's why each month, ButcherBox ships a curated selection of the finest cuts right to your home. Choose from 100% grass-fed and finished beef, free-range organic chicken, heritage pork, wild-caught Alaskan salmon, and sugar and nitrate-free bacon. No antibiotics, no added hormones, just meat the way meat should be. And right now, you can get two pounds of ground beef and two packs of bacon absolutely free, plus $20 off your first box when you visit butcherbox.com slash iHeart or use the promo code iHeart at checkout. That's butcherbox.com slash iHeart or use the promo code iHeart at checkout. Well, so uh, this all coincides also with the rise of radio as a popular medium across the country. And by 1926, because he's such a fiery preacher, he has his own radio show. And in this sort of pre-Depression era, he has a very interesting set of political views. On the one hand, he's virulently against communism. Mm -hmm. He feels like communism is, because this is, the Russian Revolution happened in 1918, 1917-1918. And so communism is kind of sweeping the world as an idea of, of, um, of actually like an organizing principle of labor. And this is a, a time when labor unions are really feeling their oats. Mm-hmm. And Coughlin uh, represents a kind of American sentiment, well, and, and in Europe too, that it's very dangerous for labor to ally itself too closely with communism because communism is anti-Christian and it also is, it, it ends up being like a morally destructive force that we need to increase the rights of workers. We need there to be a, a minimum wage and workers' rights, but we definitely don't want to tip all the way over into collective uh, this kind of communist collectivism. But Coughlin is also probably advocating populist positions that seem surprisingly progressive to us today, right? Well, yes, he is. He feels the same way about capitalism. Oh. He feels like free enterprise, unregulated, creates inhuman conditions. And he wants, he doesn't believe in unlimited right to property. He doesn't believe in unlimited right to free enterprise. He believes that there should be a regulated economic sphere. Like it's a, it's centralized, but not in the weird atheist way. We're not doing that. Right. It's not centrally planned, but he does advocate that the government nationalize big businesses and nationalize the federal reserve and take charge of a much greater spectrum of the economic world. 
in ways that are very similar to what would be described now as progressive economic policy. I mean, a lot of the things that Bernie Sanders advocates are also things that Father Coughlin would have advocated. Free education, for instance, and the abolishment of big investment banks and the much stricter regulation of the financial sector. It's interesting that that was a a possibility back then, to have this kind of populist Huey Long kind of thought that's, you know, virulently anti-communist, but at the same time is ideologically not what you would associate with anti-communist forces today. Right. He, um, he, like it's like their, their main problem with communism is just the godlessness of it, you know? Right. Like that's, what's the scariest thing, maybe encroaching atheism, taking over our institutions. Well, and also, yeah, that it would be, that it would corrupt the work, you know, that the idea that from each according to his ability to each according to his need did take away something profound from what motivated a a person to provide for their family. And, Hmm. you know, it was, it was a nuanced position, but one that came from uh, very strong convictions of its own time. He believed and often said that the Soviet communists had murdered 20 million Christians in their takeover of, of Russia. So he saw godless communism as like actively and murderously anti-Christian. And I would, and I was just thinking that, that the, probably the violence of those revolutions is probably what is extremely scary to people of that time. You know, um, a terrible autocrat got overthrown, but it wasn't, it wasn't in a, in an election. Right. You know, it was the biggest country in the world having a, a bloody revolution. And, you know, is your country next? Like that, that would sharpen my thinking too. A bloody revolution where very definitely all of the clergy were purged mm-hmm. and you no longer were free to practice your religion. The clergy got purgy. Purgy clergy. Um, so by the 30s, he had a massive audience. He was uh, in ways by far the biggest media person in the country. I know how to interpret events, at least in some small degree. And I know that it's better to stir up the people for the injustice that is perpetrated against them by industry and finance, rather than cast all the past upon the throw of the dice of fortune. Oh, I am not proud if I have prophesied that democracy is in danger, and that dictatorship at least has cast its shadow upon our flag. He had millions of listeners, some estimates as high as 30 million people tuned into his radio show. Wow. Like that's, the U.S. population is not huge then. That's, nah. that, that's like one in two or three Americans yeah. probably, right? Yeah, he was everywhere and he was extremely popular. This viewpoint, this anti-communist and anti-New York capitalist, he was anti-internationalist. He believed, you know, in America first. And this really resonated with a lot of the people in the country. And I think when you look at our political spectrum now, you see that, that these ideas, there's a, there's a schism between them. And we think of some of them as being very right and some of them as being very left. But Coughlin kind of took the populism from both sides and combined them into an ideology. 
in our time, you do see populists who would be sympathetic to a lot of that stuff, really openly embracing uh, all kinds of corporate capitalist impulses and having no problem electing landlord billionaires to high office. Uh, but on the other side, you see populists uh, who are on the left side of the spectrum sure. who have no problem nationalizing banks and businesses. There's just not a lot of overlap in our era. Yeah. Um, but they're also like similarly sort of uh, not at all interested in isolationism or in um, this idea that uh, races have a particular, like uh, play a particular role in ideology. Right. So by the thirties, right, we'd had an economic crash and this was a part of his popularity was because we were now in a depression and it seemed like these banking forces had really created the depression, just as it seems to us in our day that irresponsible economics had wrought this catastrophe. Sure. It's, it's always tempting to look for someone to blame in any situation, but when, you know, your life and the life of everyone, you know, really has got noticeably worse in the last 18 months, that's when you really start to believe, wait, someone is out to get me. Like, who do I blame? Right. And uh, communism at the time was very popular among intellectuals. And so there was among the working classes, a kind of a real fear that, that, all it takes is one recession and... Right, right. And, the, and if the unions can be turned, we're at risk of this kind of revolution. So when Roosevelt ran for president, uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, Father Coughlin was a real vocal supporter of his candidacy and, and of that initial campaign. Oh, that's interesting. He starts out pro-FDR. He's very pro-FDR. Pro-New Deal. Because the New Deal suggested all this kind of nationalization of a lot of the sort of economic engines of the time. And we were going to build these enormous projects, dams and, and uh, canals and the Tennessee Valley authority and so forth. And so FDR seemed like precisely the kind of socialist savior that was going to save the working class. Preserves our institutions right. without giving into the godless forces of atheism and communism. Right. And also knock down those bankers. Sure. Now, Coughlin was his whole life. If you read his early journals and, and, uh, and his confidential correspondence, he was always an anti-Semite. And a lot of it, I think, comes from this, uh, this prohibition of usury that is part of his Basilianism. Probably not uncommon at the time. It, it wasn't just the one in a thousand supervillain who hated Jews in 1930, right? Super common at the time. And, he, and the idea that the financial system was being controlled by an international cabal of bankers. Of elders, would you say? Was totally understood by everyone to be secret code for the Jews. The Jews were the bankers. The Rothschilds were uh, puppet masters manipulating the, behind the scenes. The banker is demanding that he retain his customary standard of living while he forces the laboring men of America by his cruel exploitation unto a wage level and a standard level that is just this side of the Bolshevik. But as the 30s progressed, Coughlin became more and more out about his anti-Semitism. Roosevelt, during the campaign, uh, appreciated his help but also kept him at arm's length. He Ro didn't, Roosevelt knew. He didn't personally like him, and he, he, he didn't want to get his hands dirty, but he loved 
this guy with 30 million listeners espousing his get, get to the polls. his candidacy. But after Roosevelt was elected, and there's some speculation that Roosevelt kind of led him on, after the election, Coughlin expected to play a big role in the administration. He thought he would be part of Roosevelt's cabinet. And when he was excluded, he turned on Roosevelt and became an enemy of the New Deal, uh, not because of the enormous projects, but because Roosevelt cultivated relationships with banks and did not completely dismember the uh, the banking institutions, but in, instead did what Obama did after his election. He kind of, Obama sort of ran on a let's penalize let's the banks platform. And then once he got in there, he appointed a bunch of bankers to his economic councils and so forth. They did not eviscerate the system. Uh, either did Roosevelt and Coughlin felt betrayed and went on the rampage. And so, Mr. Roosevelt who was very loquacious in 1933 about driving the money changers out of the temple, is now bent upon another policy. I think driving the workmen out of decent annual wages. I wonder what that's like for a listener, you know? I guess, uh, you know, you've been told by your cult leader, essentially, that this is what we're going to believe. And then one night it's like, you know, I told you to vote for Roosevelt. Well, guess what? He's turned, I guess. Yeah. I guess you have to I guess you have to frame it as he's betrayed our movement. That's what it is. The narrative of the betrayer really connects with people. Um and because they don't see the there's no cognitive dissonance then. Wait, we're against him now? It's like, yeah, of course we have to be against him. We were for him and now we're against him because he made promises that he he went back on. I mean, that's a very a very common thing within the political world, right? That you support somebody and then they betray you. And then the person who does the betraying says, well, you have no idea. Once I got into office, I saw, I was shown behind the curtain at Area 51, and I realize now that the aliens live under the North Pole and control our government. I can't really worry about. I'm tired of this protocol of elders of Mars <laughs> kind of stuff you're spreading here to the future, John. Listen, people have a right to know. Yeah. Uh, who was it? Uh, Mario Cuomo he used to say, we campaign in poetry and we govern in prose. Right. And I assume that's totally true. You get in there and you realize the limitations of any kind of office. Absolutely. Everything you promise, eventually you have to pay for. And once you get into government, you look at how things are paid for. And you can't just, you can't just do whatever you want. You can't build high-speed rail all across the United States because there just isn't money for it. And then the people who do have the money come along and say, well, we'll give you a little money, but you got to do our project. I assume it's just the, cumber, the cumbersomeness of the, what is the noun of cumbersome? The cumberness, uh -huh, the, the cucumber, cumber, the cucumber <laughs> of the whole apparatus, you know, that it's, it's not a car that can stop and turn on a dime that, you know, no matter how much the president wants policy A, B, and C, well, yeah, good luck. Yeah. And you have to be able to, I mean, in the United States, you have to be able to tax people in order to pay for big projects. And that's why in Scandinavia, they have 80% tax, but they also have free lollipops everywhere. Uh, we won't permit that here. The lollipops are herring flavored Here, and, and, right. and salt licorice, so we don't even want that. <laughs> they're buried in the they're buried in the dirt for a year. <laughs> uh, so by the mid thirties, uh, Coughlin is getting eighty thousand letters a week from listeners. So many that the town of Royal Oak, where his parish is located, has to build a new post office just to handle wow. the letters that are coming in from people who are 
exercised by his uh, his sermons. He's a messianic figure. He is, and the U.S. government now wants him gone. And they make an interesting argument, which is that Coughlin is on the radio, and the radio is a public space, mm -hmm. but a limited resource. It isn't unlimited. It's uh, the radio spectrum was divided up by a government agency and and apportioned out to stations like you are at 97.6 and that is a space that is owned by us that we are granting you to broadcast upon. And so the argument that the, the proto FCC made was it is not an infringement upon free speech for us to limit your access to the radio spectrum because it is not, I mean, you, you have the right to free speech, go ahead and do your thing, but we're not going to let you take this slice of the limited public spectrum of radio to broadcast. Sounds like that may not hold up judicially. Well, what, what, what are the mechanisms? Like how do they try to limit his, uh, his audience? Well, they just said you can no longer, uh, have this. You, you don't get that station. You don't get that station. But Coughlin did a workaround. He was so successful that he bought airtime mm. on the radio. And now it was a commercial. Now he was paying for that space on other stations. That's how America works. I'm sorry, sir. He paid for it. <laughs> there, he has money. There is literally nothing we can do. And that was their response. They were like, oh, somewhat stymied. Um, Roosevelt went to Joseph Kennedy and other prominent American Irish Catholics and said, can you reason with this guy? And they went to him and said, you know, as fellow Catholics, you got to knock it off. And he ignored them. Uh, even within the church, the Vatican was, uh, wished he would shut up also. But th the immediate hierarchy of the church that oversaw his parish, uh, the bishop and the, well, his bishop, uh, supported him. And so the church it could was... Be, it could be good for business locally, even if it's risky globally. Well, sure. And it really is getting, I mean, it's getting a it's lot of attention. getting people in the seats. And so the church was afraid to risk a kind of crisis in the church or a, a, a schism even. And so took, an, a, again, a little bit of a hands-off uh, attitude toward it. Have you always wanted to learn to play an instrument? Maybe you've even tried at some point, but gave up because you felt lessons were too expensive or that you just didn't have the time. Thankfully, there's Musician. Musician is the fun, easy, and affordable way to learn guitar, piano, bass, ukulele, and even singing. Just download the app to your desktop, tablet, or phone and start playing. Musician gives you 24-7 access to a vast catalog of video lessons from professionally trained educators, as well as thousands of exercises and songs across dozens of music genres, all tailored to your goals. And with Musician's award-winning technology that listens to you play, you'll get real-time feedback on timing and accuracy so you can actually see yourself improving as you learn. Start your extended 14-day free trial of Musician's Premium Plus package at musician.com slash start. That's unlimited access to thousands of lessons, exercises, and songs on as many instruments as you want for two whole weeks. Just go to musician.com slash start. That's Y-O-U-S-I-C-I-A-N dot com slash start. So Coughlin forms a group called the National Union for Social Justice. And his slogan is social justice. He forms a magazine called Social Justice. 
And that's where we get that phrase. He's an SJW. He is the original SJW. Except that he's also like a fascist and stuff. But by this point in time, openly and rabidly anti-Jew. That among other things in the National Union for Social Justice, we are Christian in so far as we believe in Christ's principle of love your neighbor as yourself. And with that principle, I challenge every Jew in this nation to tell me that he does not believe in it. Um, and like uh, uh, increasingly entranced by the rise of fascism in Europe. He's an early supporter of Mussolini and of Adolf Hitler. I I assume for reasons of anti-Semitism and anti-communism, right? Well, no, anti-communism in particular, because his idea that the worker needs to be protected by a strong government that limits the rapaciousness of free enterprise, but keeps communism not just at bay, but is actively at war with it. Like, it really comports with his vision of what's best for America. Therefore, under your congressional district presidents, form your battalions, take up the shield of your defense, unsheathe the sword of your truth, and carry on so that the communists, on the one hand, cannot scourge us, and that the modern capitalists, on the other, cannot plague us. And during the 30s, during the rise of European fascism, there was a lot of energy in the UK and in the United States that was pro-fascist uh, for the US as well. Sure, it was mainstream. Like it, heroes like, you know, from the cover of Time, like Henry Ford and Charles Lindbergh were speaking to Bund groups about how great Nazi Germany was. That's right. And so after Kristallnacht in Germany, uh, Coughlin just went full whole hog at it. And in fact, on his show broadcast excerpts or ended up excerpting the protocols of the elders of Zion in its entirety, reading chapters from it. Now, futurelings may not know, but the protocols of the elders of Zion is purportedly a document from within Judaism talking about their project and plan to rule the world. Here's how we're going to rule the world, fellow uh, elders of Zion. That's right. And, and it, it was supposedly, you know, uh, promulgated within the Jewish church to lay out this project. Now, the Protocols of the Elders of Zion has been discredited for decades as a a propaganda tool written within Russia. Probably longer. Yeah, it's a crude forgery. Uh, A crude forgery and yet continues to resurface as a, even in our own day, uh, the alt-right now will tout it as continued evidence that the Jews are trying to run the world. Um, it's kind of the corollary thing about how, you know, you can't keep a good idea down if it's, it's time, you know, apparently <laughs> you can't keep a bad idea down either because the same old tropes from the twenties will just keep coming back. Well, and the, and the protocols of the elders of Zion is written in a way that sounds very hocus pocus and also is easily readable by someone who doesn't have all the critical thinking faculties. Oh, I wouldn't, I wouldn't know. I've never, I've never read it. Oh, you haven't? No, I've never. Apparently you have. (laughs) Of course. How do you get into the 20th century or 21st century without having at least perused the protocols of the elders of Zion? Uh, At at the same time, um, Coughlin's kind of turning into the, what we think of as the model of a modern televangelist. Right. Right. Like he's, uh, he's created 
the league of the little flower right for people to for you know widows and and catholic dads to send in a dollar or two from the grocery money he started a political party called the christian front whoa yes so Try and put this guy into one of your contemporary jars. Like he's, he runs the social justice magazine, but then he's like, my political party really has to sound like stormtroopers. What, what can it be? He ran a, he ran a candidate for the president in 1938 who got less than a million votes, but not that much less than a million votes. He's, uh, he's found a niche. He found his niche. That's right. And when the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor, he still believed and claimed that Pearl Harbor was a inside job, an inside job of the Tw- Jews. Twelve seven was an inside job. Uh, that this was part of a of a vast global conspiracy to bring us into this war that was only going to uh, benefit the, I mean, the Rothschilds, for lack of a better term. I guess you have to double down. At that point, you can't be like, "No, Hirohito has betrayed our movement." Uh, Little little flower <laughs> listeners, let's all join up. Well, and a lot of the isolationists like Joe Kennedy or Henry Ford or Ezra Pound, who had spent the 30s sort of admiring Hitler and railing against FDR, found in that galvanizing moment of Pearl Harbor that they no longer could maintain this kind of pro-fascist isolationism and they all got on board, right? That now America needed to get, you know, boots on the ground and they were all like pro USA. It literally is the least you can do to be for your country after a sneak bombing on your Navy, you know? <laughs> well, okay. All right. All right. But Coughlin uh, didn't play ball. And so the U S government again had to figure out a method to get him off the air and eventually declared that his program was enemy propaganda. And shut him down. I guess that's more plausible in wartime, right? If he's saying, uh, you know, your government is lying to you and you know who's really great is Mussolini. I mean, that's maybe that is a plausible use of, of treason laws. And at the time, his listenership was declining rapidly for these same reasons. People that had been sitting out in their Oklahoma farms railing against the Jews were now more focused on fighting the Japanese. And, you know, the Japanese and Asians in general kind of became the new bet noir of American uh, racists. Like Jews are old news now? Yeah, why are we worried about the Jews? We have, uh, we have these, um, the yellow, yellow peril, peril to right. fight. Uh, but that anti-Semitism that was hard-baked into American political life is a big part of why we didn't accept a lot of Jewish immigrants from Europe. We had very strict and limited quotas on how many Jews could emigrate. And we weren't particularly moved by the early evidence of the Holocaust. Um, so you could say if you wanted to, if you wanted to pin hundreds of thousands or millions of deaths on Father Coughlin that could have been presented, prevented by more liberal immigration policies, you could do it. I you guess. could, although it would be, you'd be hard pressed, even if Coughlin wasn't there, uh, to have found a liberal immigration policy at the time. And I think some of that was slapped back from the immigration of all the Italians and Irish that had come immediately prior. Right. It wasn't hard to whip people up against Jews in 1930. It wasn't something uniquely that he could do. Right. And the Catholic Church also bears a tremendous uh, responsibility. within Europe Europe. itself for not having really 
you know, they, they took a buy on that sort of 10 year period. Well, you don't know who's going to win. That's right. That's right. You don't want to bet on the wrong horse. Uh, anyway, so after he was stripped of his enormous public platform, no. By, by the way, during the war, he was, his uh, League of the Little Flower started to be called the League of the Little Fuhrer, which is a pretty good own, I think. <laughs> that holds Owned. up. The League of the Little Fuhrer. Busted. <laughs> he asked for that one. Uh, the church, he wa- the thing is, he was not defrocked. And the church said... You need to go back to... He just went back to his parish? He went back to the Shrine of the Little Flower. Hey, guys. And was continued to be the parish priest until 1966. It would be like going to your Sunday school and having Jimmy Carter like come in to teach the, the Bible study. Yeah, right. Or Oswald Mosley. I mean... Yeah, it's not, you know, it's, it's, it's not Jimmy Carter. It's got to be a villain. <laughs> it's just the idea of a celebrity showing up in church and being like, yeah, I'm sort of past my sell-by date, but... Yeah, he was, the, he was the biggest personality in the country. But he had a pretty good run. When you think about how quick um, these guys tend to flame out... Yeah, he you know, went for a full 20 years on the radio as, as like the biggest deal. Like the closest thing in our era might be somebody like Glenn Beck with his blackboards full of crazy conspiracies. And that guy maybe got three good years. I guess, I don't know what the mechanism is. People just want a new conspiracy. The novelty of the, of the new discovery is the appeal of conspiracy theory. Well, Coughlin didn't really ally himself uh, with uh, conventional narrative. He wasn't just anti-bank. He was anti-communist. And he wasn't just anti-communist. And he wasn't just anti-Jew. He was uh, a man for all seasons. So people liked the emotional richness of his character? And I think there were, that's right, and I think there were a lot of people and uh, a lot of the middle class and, and working class in America were baffled. It felt like a time of great upheaval. Uh, the roaring 20s and the, and World War One were in the rearview mirror, and communism was sweeping the the globe. There was a massive global depression. It wasn't entirely clear what was going to happen. It now, in retrospect, seems, of course, like history marched inevitably in the direction it did. But in this conflict between the races and the uh, the ideologies, it wasn't natural necessarily that anyone would prevail. Well, luckily, we've learned from this kind of firebrand charlatanism, and this could never happen today. Even without a, a global depression, you know, nobody like this could ever huckster America into all kinds of crazy uh, beliefs. Well, a- after decades where demagogues were on the fringe, we now have returned in our own era to a time when demagoguery really has a, a pretty wide audience. And a lot of the argument made by supporters of Bernie Sanders was that had he been the Democratic nominee, he would have siphoned off a lot of the populism. He gets the demagogue vote. That's right. All the, all the people on the right, all the people who voted for uh, Donald Trump who did so only because they were Because opposed, screw you, basically. Because screw you and also that they see the greatest threat being coastal elites. Mm-hmm. Um, and oftentimes the language used to describe coastal elites is international bankers, the the tried and true trope. And as we saw, Donald Trump's campaign did utilize a lot of sort of encoded emblems of the Jews. Well, yeah, the populists really had a choice. They could have the landlord banker billionaire type 
or the Jewish guy. Right. What's your real prejudice? I guess we found out. And Bernie Sanders would have been, right, the first Jewish major party candidate for the, the president. So we're now living in a in a another era where it really isn't entirely there isn't a unified sense. Uh, we I guess we need another Pearl Harbor, and and it, it will be when the aliens attack. I think that's pretty clear in our contemporary media. Yeah, I I think you and I should be the anti-Martian demagogues when that happens. <laughs> People of the future, look out for your fish demagogue or whatever the guy with the biggest underwater breathing helmet. And the loudest loudspeaker. The thing is, right up until the event, I'm going to be pro-Martian. And <laughs> I, think the, I think that'll be some of my strength, as I'll say, the Martians betrayed us. Welcome back to the Omnibus listeners. Uh, you know as well as I do, the Martians have betrayed us. It turns out they just wanted our salt and our, and our women. <laughs> they, they lived peacefully under the North Pole for so long. I loved the probes. They, <laughs> we loved their promises and we loved the free probes, but they just wanted the salt. Join me. Rise up. And that concludes Father Coglin, entry 284.MT2309, certificate number 29423, in the omnibus. In the unlikely event social media still exists in your era, tweets where we post our own demagogic rants are archived at, at Omnibus Project or under our individual handles, at Ken Jennings, and the weird stuff under at John Roderick. John also maintains an Instagram account under that name. We were also Omnibus Project on Facebook and Instagram. We also maintained an email account for people to send us their weirdest conspiracy theories at omnibusproject at howstuffworks.com. Listen, futurelings, you may be living in a, and I certainly hope you are, in a world where Ken and I are remembered as these salty firebrand preachers. Truth tellers. Truth tellers. But uh, there's no way for us to know how long our civilization will survive and how long or if he and I will be lauded in ways that we assume. Uh, we hope and pray that the catastrophe of us being forgotten will never come. We hope the Vatican never turns on us, for sure. Well, they won't, because up the chain... You know, our bishops are in our corner. That's right. Too powerful at this point. But if we are relegated to the dustbin of history, uh, this recording, like all our recordings, may be our final word. But if the Lord in heaven above allows, we hope to be back with you soon for another entry in the Omnibus. Omnibus.